Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Most people tend to mark the beginning of Indian international relations thought to Nehru and his attempts to build a true non-aligned movement and a more enlightened international system. But Indian thought and international relations didn't emerge sui generis after Indian independence, as Rahul Sagar notes in his edited anthology, To Raise a Fallen People, the 19th Century Origins of Indian Views on International Politics, published this year by Columbia University Press. Rahul collects writings from Indian thinkers on a variety of topics, the threat posed by Russia, the value of free trade, discrimination faced by Indians at home and overseas, showing the diversity of views present in Indian political, dis- political debate long before 1945. Rahul Sagar is a Global Network Associate Professor of Political Science at New York University Abu Dhabi. His books include Secrets and Leaks, The Dilemma of State Secrecy, and the Progressive Maharaja, Sir Madhavi Rao's Hints on the Art and Science of Government. Today, Rahul and I talk about these collected writings and what they tell us about India then, and perhaps India today. So, Rahul, thanks so much for joining me on the Asian Review Books podcast. You know, let's start with maybe the, maybe as an obvious question, you know, why collect this anthology? What's important about 19th century Indian writing that we're missing? Nicholas, thanks so much for having me. And uh, thanks for that nice broad opening question. Um, the reason I collected these uh, these essays is really twofold. The first is um, to show, as you started out with, that there was a lot going on in India intellectually and politically uh, before 1947 about um, international politics. The, the the general view, the conventional view until really very recently, was that there was not really much said or done uh, about international international politics before independence because Indians were primarily concerned with trying to obtain freedom and resolving social and economic inequities at home. So they were focused primarily on domestic uh, politics and concerns. That was the, the conventional view. And in the last few years, um, there's been important work done that pushes the story back a couple of decades uh, to the 1920s and 1930s, uh, showing uh, how uh, prominent figures uh, traveled, participated in international events, and sort of developed a wider view. And maybe the earliest this goes back to someone like uh, uh, Gandhi and, and his views on, on international relations in maybe the 1920s. What I've tried to show is that actually those developments and discoveries and what we think about as um, the foundations of India's view of the world uh, are much deeper and go back much further, uh, more than a century, in fact. And and so that's the the first thing, just as a a matter of fact, as a matter of empirical record, I wanted to show that there was, in fact, a lot out there. Um, Speeches, debates, essays, uh, articles, reportage, travelogues, um, uh, petitions, pamphlets, all of these are things that I've collected and sorted and sifted through uh, to present this um, overview of what was actually happening a whole century before we 
usually think India started thinking about international politics. And the second reason I made this effort is, aside from just correcting the record, which is, I guess, important enough in itself, but I wanted to show something more than that. I wanted to show that when we look back at the 19th century and we see what Indians were saying and doing, how they were reacting to um, a changing international system and uh, the intensity and immensity of global power conflict, global global um, power competition in the 19th century, we see the kernel of how they ha- how they came to and are now responding to international uh, tensions and conflict and competition. So the 19th century is important not just because it tells us Indians were thinking, but it tells us what they were thinking about international politics back then uh, was influential. It still affects us today. So maybe you could remind us kind of what India's place in the British Empire was at this time. You know how much how much authority, how much autonomy did it have within the empire? And how, I guess, what was the imperial government that kind of ruled India? How was that structured? Yeah, so there are two broad phases. Uh, The great uh, deciding event is uh, the 1857 uh, mutiny or revolution, which then produces crown government uh, from the center, from from the metropolis, um, after 1858. But in the period before that, in the first half of the 19th century, uh, India is uh, ruled partly through the East India Company and partly through Parliament, which oversees the East India Company and sets various bounds and laws that the East India Company has to um, has to uh, live up to. And in the first half uh, of the, the 19th century, um, the company is still settling its, uh, its, its control and its uh, uh, structures and institutions and processes. Um, the great achievement for the company from their perspective is that between 1800 and 1820, they uh, complete their, um, uh, their hegemony over uh, much of the, the sort of the central landmass of the continent. They have uh, everything from Delhi all the way down uh, to modern-day Kerala, either directly under their control or uh, through a system of what they call subsidiary uh, alliances, which are basically uh, dependencies that give up their foreign and uh, uh, trade policies um, and their international links. All of these can only be routed through the British. The British have to agree to delegations, to travel, to trade arrangements, to uh, pacts or trade agreements, things of that kind. So, between 1800 and 1858, you get this gradual concentration of um, international uh, control in the hands of the company, which deprives either directly or indirectly Indians of uh, agency in the international arena. And after 1858, the crown takes over. And then there's a further interesting change. If the first half of the century had been the company just simply trying to gain control of and putting in place systems and processes, uh, building out a bureaucracy that came to be called the Indian Civil Service, uh, modernizing and recruiting uh, the Indian military, which had worked on more feudal lines before that, before the company appeared. Um, all of these things are sort of set into motion and are re- reasonably well developed by 1858. But once the crown takes over and rule is... Um, 
uh, ultimately uh, out of London, then Indian foreign policy, Indian military policy, Indian economic policy becomes subservient uh, to broader British objectives. And then you start to see Indian um, troops or Indian trade arrangements or Indian resources being used or indeed Indians themselves in their physical bodies when they're used as indentured labor uh, in other British colonies. You see India being um, pulled into, attached to, connected to the global economy and the global political, um, the, the international system, I should say, in all sorts of new and dramatically different ways. So on on reading some of the essays, writings in this in this in this collection, I was struck by how some essays were they were quite you know, flattering towards the British and the British Empire. I think one can ask how sincere that flattery was. You know, it could, it could have been a deliberate effort to to make a political point or an effort to. Um, I guess getting close with the with with the imperial authorities, um, but 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 I guess from from that observation, kind of it kind of shifts me to my question, which is kind of who who were the intended audience, or who was the intended audience for for these pieces? Um, where were they published? Who were these various writers writing for? Yeah, that gets to the that gets to the heart of uh, why this anthology is important. So these figures were. What were called at the time, um, and, and pardon the gendered language, it, it fit with the sociology of the time, representative men, which meant they were the figures uh, that um, voiced um, the, the ideas, the worldviews, the sentiments, uh, the emotions and reactions of educated metropolitan India. And what I mean by that is, uh, starting in the early 19th century, not just by British agency, but from a, for a variety of reasons, Indians um, recognize that they've been colonized because they have uh, failed to cultivate uh, the, the kinds of uh, technologies, ideas, resources, communal and uh, communitarian attachments, patriotism, all those sorts of things that would have made them able to resist external uh, invasion uh, and, and aggression. And so they rush to be educated uh, in modern ways, especially in science, but also through English, uh, have access to all sorts of other kinds of knowledge, uh, geographic, um, uh, commercial, uh, and um, and political, and uh, and so they 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 demand, they petition for the creation of schools and colleges and universities, which they get gradually every decade from the 1820s onwards, sees a steady expansion in the number of these institutions. And by the 1850s and 60s, Indians then begin to mimic uh, what they see their teachers doing in these institutions, almost all of whom are English or British. What they see is these figures living the high life of Victorian England in the intellectual sense, taking part in public debate, discussion, um, writing in periodicals, uh, giving speeches and uh, debating in clubs and societies the ideas and policies of the day. And they begin to mimic these. And because they are often excluded, almost always excluded uh, from British periodicals, uh, uh, partly for racial reasons, partly because of their uncertain grasp uh, over the, the, the finer points of the English language or things of that kind. Um, because they're excluded, they begin to then publish journals of their own. And many of these essays that I found are in these journals uh, because these journals can be distributed across the country. They are 
more immediate. It's uh, the address policies that matter for that set of months or that year. Uh, unlike books, they don't require vast amounts of resources to, to write, uh, to publish, to distribute. And because they're in English, they can um, circulate easily across the country regardless of vernacular or local linguistic differences. And so these, these figures who are writing in these periodicals, writing these essays, are representative of, in some ways, what's finest about the Indian reaction uh, to colonialism. And that's why, as you said, they sometimes seem appreciative or they seem flattering. They recognize that what the colonial, for better or for worse, what the colonial experience has given them is uh, a chance to, um, uh, to come to grips with modernity. And they seize it with both hands. And so they are, in that sense, um, uh, grateful might be too strong a word, but they acknowledge that this as they call it often, providence has brought them to this moment. Uh, and then they decide to make the most of it. And they do that by starting to uh, read widely, travel, uh, engage in uh, debate and discussion, both written and spoken, and thereby refining ideas that really prepare them to then lead in the 20th century a much more um, activist uh, public life where they demand things because now they've started to understand them. Yeah, you know, it 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 reminds me of 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 other kind of modernization campaigns uh, throughout Asia. You know, I'm thinking of Japan, I'm thinking of China, um, which have this kind of similar. I mean, and obviously the the balance is different, but they have a similar kind of love hate relationship with Western knowledge, Western culture, Western power. Um, I mean, how did Indian intellectuals, Indian elites at this time? You know, see, see Britain as as a source of knowledge, as a source of culture, as a source of power. How did they kind of? I mean, you have you have chats the book kind of like what what can Indians learn from the West and what can the rest of the world learn from India? I think at the very end of your book. Yeah, uh, that's that's the that's the great debate in a sense, uh, particularly towards the um, the end of the nineteenth century, as Indians look back and reflect, and what's the what's the the insight or the learning that they take with them into the 20th century um, is this question about whether they really learned something useful uh, from, the, from the West, from this encounter, this uh, in, encounter with imperialism and with uh, um, Western modernity. And so you're exactly right. You see a very, very similar trajectory in China and Japan. In many ways, India is first in the story because it's colonized first. Uh, English education gets to and is accepted in, in India um, uh, many decades before uh, the same thing happens both in Japan um, and, and then in China. So um, India in some ways is, is a really interesting case uh, for um uh, for a wide audience to think about and reflect on, for an Asian audience to reflect on at least, uh, because uh, you see the very first set of reactions um, um, to to Western modernity. And then what are those reactions? And, and how does that connect up with the, the second part of your question? In the first half of the century, as we were just discussing, Indians are um, uh, appreciative or at least um, um, see that they have an opening that they can take advantage of. And, and they're really prepared to take advantage of the British. Uh, they don't see themselves as powerless, defenseless, uh, uh, naive, or uh, unthinking, or, or as 
slaves. They see themselves as uh, creatively, um, um, cleverly constructing uh, new identities and ways of being in response to the challenges they face. So they adapt. They don't react by, uh, uh, you know, by turning inwards and becoming a shell. They don't uh, react violently or forcefully and and suggest uh, everything in modernity is corrupt and should be resisted. Instead, they try to take what they have, take the old, see what if it is meaningful under modern circumstances, especially when exposed to uh, science and, and scientific thinking, and then to fashion new ways of being in the world, new identities, including this broader sense of an Indian national identity that sits above any other pre-existing regional or, or, or local identities. So the first half of the century sees Indians much more um, I think, uh, appreciative of the uh, benefits of Western modernity. And then the story starts to change. In the second half of the 19th century, as, as Indians reflect on what they've learned and what the West is actually doing, often in other parts, for example, the opium trade, or uh, the forceful opening up of J- Japan, or the colonization of the Philippines, uh, or uh, the settling of... Um, uh, indentured labor in uh, Malaya and Singapore, all of these events and activities make them begin to doubt the things they, that they were appreciative of in the first half of the 19th century. They say to themselves, well, all of this is great to learn about modern science, but if the purpose of modern science is to make warfare more efficient and effective, is it really a good thing? They also start to wonder if all of these claims that they hear about liberalism, the high Victorian morality of individuality and progress, if any of these things really mean uh, much uh, when they see uh, the British um, mistreating not just Indians but other um, uh, other races uh, around the world and uh, in other colonies as, as they travel, as they go through Japan, as they go through Hong Kong and Shanghai, as they... Uh, travel, of course, to, to Canada and so on, they, they see how uh, unequal uh, the Western world uh, treats uh, people of other races. And it starts to engender a kind of uh, uh, skepticism that later turns into hostility. So you get these two kinds of reaction at the end of the 19th century, um, uh, which I think is also seen in China and Japan. One saying our culture is actually more moral, it's more spiritual, it's higher. And another saying... Uh, the West is simply hypocritical and we need something else. We need something better. And uh, in the 20th century, those two things turn into a sort of Indian, uh, the first with figures like Gandhi, turn into an Indian spiritualism that resists Western modernity and materialism. And the second you turns into Indian uh, connections with global uh, socialism and global communism, saying the West is corrupt, but um, we can do better. Uh, we have to find a global answer uh, to the problems of power and, and inequality. And so it's from that reaction uh, in the 19th century that you get these two big trends in the 20th century that are so associated with India. You know, there there are so many different topics that, that, that your anthology covers. Um, but I'm going to maybe start from your mention of, of the opium trade in China, because um, you have a, you have several chapters in your book that deal with India's or Indian views towards countries that weren't Britain. Um, you have a chapter on China, you have a chapter on Turkey, um, and you have a chapter on Russia. 
um, specifically kind of the the military threat posed by Russia to Central Asia and to India. Um, and so I wonder if you might talk a bit more about how India saw these other these these other powers, maybe maybe, maybe w- w- with more attention on Russia, given the that seemed to have the clearest um, point to talk about for Indian writers, which was the the potential military threat posed by the country. Yeah, um, the the awareness of um, other countries and international politics uh, starts to really only grow in a very uh, decisive way after the 1870s, because that's when Indians uh, who are um, educated and well off in the metropolitan parts of the country are able to summon up the courage uh, to uh, to travel overseas and uh, and, and challenge the existing sort of taboos against uh, against leaving India's shores. Um, and uh, uh, as they begin to travel, you start to find them in um, in places like Germany, in Russia, in Turkey, uh, of course in in England and Western Europe, but also later in the United States and Japan as uh, as the uh, as advances in steam shipping uh, make these journeys more more manageable and 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 uh, faster, more predictable. So you start to see Indians spreading widely, and by the last two decades of the 19th century, they're writing about a whole range of countries. They're writing about Japan with particular fascination because Japan is moving f- much more rapidly than India is because it isn't colonized in the same way. Uh, Japan is moving rapidly towards modernity and they're greatly uh, uh, astonished and and uh, mostly admiring of Japan's uh, uh, revolution after the Meiji. And so they, um, they, they eagerly report on cases such as this. In other places, uh, they are, uh, <clears throat> their links depend on particular identity. So for example, Turkey is of much greater importance uh, because it's at that point the the center of uh, the caliphate. It's of much greater importance to Muslim writers and travelers uh, than to those of other communities. Uh, Similarly, Christians uh, travel much more as as, uh, either as missionaries in training or as uh, recent converts uh, travel much more to England or the United States in particular uh, than they would to sort of, you know, Eastern Europe or to Russia or something of that kind or, or to Japan. So you get different sorts traveling to different places. The one country, you were exactly right, that really is uh, uh, com- compels them, that everyone is compelled to take very seriously and think about is Russia, uh, because when the great game, this geopolitical contest between uh, Russia and uh, and Britain uh, begins to expand in, uh, I mean, it runs all the way from 1820 up till 1893, but um, the first 20 or 30 decades of the, com- of the contest are relatively um, uh, unnoticed in India because... Russia is still very far away. It's still working its way through Central Asia. But by the 1870s, it's approaching Afghanistan. And in the uh, uh, 1880s, it gets there, uh, right to the very tip. And so then Indians suddenly start to take the story very seriously, because most of the prior invasions of India, apart from the the, the, the British, um, or I should say the European powers, the British, the Dutch, the Portuguese, etc., the European powers came by sea. But um, prior invasions had come in from the Northwest. And so when Russia reaches uh, Afghanistan, Indians suddenly sit up very straight and start to take the matter very seriously, especially when it becomes clear that England is really not prepared uh, for this kind of contest. England runs a relatively small military um, uh, establishment in India. 
because so many Indian uh, states, uh, native states, are uh, willing to work with the British. They don't actually require immense military power to maintain order. And so um, uh, the British are somewhat under-equipped. They're distracted by other uh, geopolitical um, uh, objectives elsewhere in the world that soak up their resources, whether it's in Egypt or uh, Turkey, etc. And so there's this anxiety in India. Might we actually be invaded? Might the British actually be expelled? What should we make of this entire situation? What do we think of the Russian political system? And so for, uh, for, a, for about a 20-year period between 1870 and 1890, Indians have to really fundamentally confront uh, the nature and character of international politics. Is it fine that this country is simply invading, this country being Russia, is invading and occupying country after country as it works its way towards Afghanistan and would turn up in England? Should we welcome them simply because they might lead to the expulsion of the British? What if they're worse? Uh, which is what many of the Indian liberals worry about. And they say that Indians should support the British on grounds of value. They don't think the British are uh, in India for uh, for for uh, the good of Indians, but they think Indians are better off under the British than they would be under the Russians. And then there are other radicals and revolutionaries who simply have the view that we should take great advantage of the fact that the Russians are bearing down. The instability that uh, they would uh, create uh, would open up an opportunity for us uh, to expel the British. So you get different sorts of responses. You get Indians traveling to Russia and then writing for Indian newspapers uh, from Russia or I should say, writing after they're expelled from Russia about how um, frightening and uh, dictatorial the Russian uh, political system is and how much better it is to live, in Engl- uh, live under English rule where at least you can complain in some measure. Uh, so you get these really remarkable sets of essays uh, uh, going both ways, uh, questioning and challenging uh, what Indians should do. And it's their first great uh, moment in the 19th century where they confront really confront international politics in its bare uh, form. So I, I want to end with Gandhi's essay on South Africa. Um, you know, and, and, and he's writing, he's, he's clearly highlighting a particular injustice um, on how Indians are being treated in South Africa, you know, um, being denied certain rights, certain privileges. Um, but on reading it, and, and 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 I know this is early Gandhi. This isn't this isn't the 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 Gandhi that that became famous as a spiritual and political leader decades later. But one can't shake the feeling that he's upset that Indians aren't getting the same privileges as Europeans. Um, maybe less so about the whole racial structure in South Africa itself. Maybe that's an unfair reading, and you can correct me. Um, but I did, but I did want kind of want to end on on that particular essay, given the prominence that Gandhi now has. Um, in talking about Indian political history, yeah, it is uh, it is a, a, a difficult um, uh, part of the of the story uh, for for um, Gandhi's thought in particular. He he does so. So let me take one step back and and and, and reflect on why he is so worried about Indians, uh, why he's so centrally focused on Indians being treated. Uh, as equals, and and this has something to do with the origins of liberal or international um, uh, thinking uh, in 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 India in the in the latter part of the nineteenth century, the early part of the twentieth century, where which are the sort of formative influences on Gandhi, and Indians are reacting to 
the promises made to them after 1858 that they are subjects of Queen Victoria, that they are members of this larger British empire, uh, and that like other members of the British empire, they will be uh, um, cultivated, encouraged, fostered, uh, they will progress, and eventually in some way, as they hoped throughout the 19th century, particularly in the latter part of the 19th century, they hoped that they will have representative government. Uh, and so Gandhi is, these, these, um, his, his pleas and his, um, his cries for, for justice are coming from that background where Indians expected uh, by virtue of, quote-unquote, civilizing themselves, right, um, uh, uh, learning English. He's a lawyer. He's gone to the, the inner temple. So uh, he's uh, mastered uh, the intricacies of uh, uh, British um, uh, constitutionalism and so on. If this person and or people like this can't be treated as equals, then who will ever be? So it's sort of coming from this, this plaintive cry that, look, we've met these criteria uh, of wealth, education, background, upbringing, uh, ability of various kinds, and yet we are not treated as equal. So uh, that's the part I, I would sort of uh, say uh, partially or partly as a kind of defense for his perspective. And then I think there's a, a second part, which is, well, one would you know hope you would go beyond that to see broader affinities um, in in the in the suffering of others and and a, and a broader critique of uh, of a of a highly uh, inegalitarian uh, uh, racial structure, and I think here Gandhi is not unlike many other uh, nationalities or thinkers of the nineteenth century, still thinking of a world in which uh, race, ethnicity, uh, and even class have um, have uh, have kind of uh, they, they 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 not limit but they kind of uh, put a, they put a horizon to your thinking. So you will you will assume that people from China think, see, feel, act a particular way, uh, and you will say the Japanese, or you will say you know the Chinese, and so you get this sort of idea that look we're arguing for our group community association unit uh, and what happens to others is for them to argue about because each one of us is so different so in a sense I guess what I'm trying to say is the the, the more universalistic ideas that start to then appear about a, a decade or two after Gandhi writes this essay uh, those are not yet quite there in circulation in the late 1900s when Gandhi's writing this essay and giving these speeches about how Indians are treated in South Africa uh, there tends to be more of a uh, regional, racial, uh, ethnic uh, kind of horizon. That changes both for Gandhi and for India in general as the 20th century rolls around and many, many more Indians begin traveling. And they begin traveling to more unusual destinations, not just London, uh, but they start traveling to Eastern Europe, they start traveling to Latin America, uh, and of course they start traveling to many other colonized parts of Asia. And that gives them the realization and of course, I can't forget uh, the, the the large migrations to um, places like the Caribbean uh, and East Africa and South, South South Pacific. All of these make them aware of the similarities of uh, the imperial experience of subjugation across races, and uh, in a in a in the broader awakening that happens across the world 
um, uh, in the wake of especially the First World War, uh, this sense that we all belong to this larger family of nations and the, 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 the family of, uh, of mankind. And we have this broader identity above race or pan-race. Uh, our races don't, uh, don't divide us. As that thinking spreads, then, of course, Indians become deeply interested in and invested in broader movements that are against racism, that are against imperialism and so on. But that takes a few decades and comes a little later. And so I hope that helps. This this background helps explain something about why Gandhi um, has what looked like blinkers uh, in the the 19th century. You know, I was talking about how kind of thought develops over time, thought developed history, kind of lend is maybe a good segue to my to my very last question, um, which is, you know, I mean, it's how do how do these writings in the 19th century, how do how does Indian discussion about international relations, about free trade, which we didn't get into in our conversation um, about power, about race, about um, cultural influence? How do these how, how do these conversations influence the development of Indian international relations thought post-independence and to the present day. Now, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, our, our, our India's diplomats today, are they reading writings like this? Probably not. Um, but as no diplomat probably is reading 19th century writings from American or British European thinkers of that type too. That's just not how they operate. But, but, but how are conversations from the 19th century, um, these Indian conversations, influencing how India sees itself in the world, sees itself as part of the international system, how India thinks about foreign policy today? Yeah, you know, there, there's two kinds of transmission mechanisms. One is not entirely far removed from the the, the, the speculation you just had, which is there are still decision makers in India from the prime minister down uh, who will read and think about important figures from the 19th century and and be at least conversant with it. They might not read or have the time. They certainly have the intellect, but they may not have the time to read them at great length or they may have read them a few decades ago. But I I think that there's a general familiarity with, with some key figures. They don't have the the full spectrum. That's why I wrote the book to introduce them to this much wider array of voices or remind them of them, uh, bring them to their notice. So um, they're not aware of the full uh, range or spectrum, uh, the depth of the debates and discussions of the 19th century, but they have an openness and some awareness of uh, at least a few key figures, particularly towards the very end of the 19th century, people like Vivekananda or um, or Gokhale and, and figures like that, um, um, uh, precursors, forerunners to Gandhi and others. Uh, Dada Bhai Naroji, who plays a key role in, in uh, for example, critiques of uh, inequitable trade. Most, most Indians will have heard of him and be familiar with his broad ideas, though he's only one of many voices on this subject. So there are some transmission networks that are, that are like that, that are just direct, where people have some awareness of particular figures. But I think it's the second transmission mechanism that I'm most interested in and why I think we really need to read and think about the 19th century. It's that the figures in the 19th century marked a decisive break with everything that had come before because there was a change in language uh, from um, um, uh, Persian and Urdu and Arabic uh, and Sanskrit 
uh, and even regional languages towards English, which became a sort of the lingua franca, and with English, an introduction to new ideas, debates and discussions, as we've been discussing for this last half hour, that really uh, brought India into a global conversation. Indians began to think not so much about how one principality takes over another or how one uh, religion uh, contests another, but they started to think about states and international actors and alliances and so on at the global, at the international level. So the 19th century is a major turning point intellectually and materially. A nation state appears where previously there had been a collection of many different smaller um, uh, uh, principalities or native states. So the 19th century is unique. And the, found, the founders of Indian institutions, associations, universities, colleges, political organizations, debating clubs and societies, newspapers, magazines, all of these occurred in the 19th century. And they therefore almost inevitably ended up shaping and forming the ideas and the worldviews of people in the early 20th century. And those are the ones who led India to independence. And so the 19th century has this second transmission mechanism of literally ideas flowing through peoples and peoples and institutions, leaders and institutions in this very visceral way. Um, it is not hundreds of years ago, but literally the founders of the National Congress who help bring the country to independence in 47 are all reading and writing in the same journals. It's quite a remarkable set of threads that tie them together. So that's the transmission mechanism. And then what is it that that transmission mechanism sends forward? In, in my book, I try and say that the one great question that was never answered in the 19th century and wasn't answered in the 20th century and still lives with us today and is being now answered is the question of what should India's reaction be to global power politics? Um, in the 19th century, uh, Indians lived under the shadow of uh, empire. Uh, they had limited uh, ability to actually enact policy. They could debate it and question it, but they didn't have to resolve or settle the debate because their hand was not on the levers of power. And in the 20th century, when their hand finally got on the lever of power, there was already a Cold War underway that sort of locked global competition into two camps, and then that was that was it. You uh, And so India made its choice to sort of straddle or sit in the middle of the two camps and and uh, and undertake this policy called non-alignment, which really allowed it to defer the question of what it makes of international politics. Now, as we enter a world that is multipolar, uh, in which India has abilities of its own that it didn't have when it became independent, when it has a large population and a large economy and a set of global connections that are much more like what it had at the beginning of the 19th century, then it really becomes a, a question once again, what kind of power does India want to be? What kind of decisions does it want to make? What does it, what capabilities and capacities does it want to cultivate? What kinds of norms does it want to support or oppose? So the debates of the 19th century are deeply important to us because we are in fact now starting to answer the questions that were asked then. That's the, that's the kind of crucial um, importance of this, um, of this book in these essays. So I think with that, that ends our interview with Rahul Segar, author of To Raise a Fallen People, The 19th Century Origins of Indian Views on International Politics. Rahul, I actually have two more questions for you to finish things off. And those questions are, uh, where can people find your work? And 
What's next for you? What's the next project? Uh, thanks so much, Nicholas. Yeah, so the, the book is available uh, widely. It's available with uh, Columbia University Press, uh, uh, both on their website and on Amazon.com. And it's um, there's also an Indian edition of the book uh, published by Juggernaut Press, and that's available with uh, Amazon India. Uh, and as for myself, I'm now uh, working on a, on a n- new book that uh, will be ready by the end of this year and will hopefully come out next year, uh, the middle of next year. And it traces the story of how it is uh, that the East India Company was able to uh, defeat um, uh, the, the major principalities that still existed in India at the beginning of the 19th century. So it tells the story about what went wrong, what were the weaknesses in decision-making capacities and capabilities and virtues uh, of the of of India's uh, political elite and political leadership in the 19th century that allowed the British to actually come out triumphant. So it sort of takes the story back a few decades more. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at BookReviewsAsia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. The Asian Review of Books podcast is on all our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends, support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with John Sehi, author of The Last Tigers of Hong Kong, True Stories of Big Cats That Stalked Britain's Chinese Colony. But before then, Rahul, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks very much, Nicholas. This was great fun.